Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Okay, so today what I'd like to do is continue uh, again with our our Footsteps of Messiah series. This particular lesson I'd like to do in two lessons. I'd like to split it in two because I think it's, it's definitely too long for one lesson. And the second lesson really depends on the first lesson. So part one, we're going to give an introduction and these are principles that we've been talking about in the class. Give a little bit of introduction on the incense service, the the work of maintaining the menorah, this apocalyptic appearance of Yeshua in the book of Revelation, and why he is wearing the specific items that he is wearing as John sees him in this vision. Relate these, of course, to the temple service, which is going to help us relate as a royal priesthood. Because even though we may not be Levitical priests, if we're part of a royal priesthood, there will be patterns and principles to draw upon from the Levitical priesthood. He will he will give us some bullet points. He will give us, like I say, some templates to think about as a royal priesthood, because much of that service will overlap. However, as the Levitical priesthood functioned as priests to the 12 tribes of Israel. In turn, the 12 tribes of Israel are a royal priesthood who serve the nations, right? So similar, but not identical. And of course, you know, ultimately, whether we're looking at the royal priesthood or whether we're looking at the Levitical priesthood, one of their primary concerns has to be making a house of prayer for all nations. That's very important. So I want to take a, um, a look at our newsletter. If, if you do get our newsletter, you already knew the title of today's lesson, which is No Place for Chickens, Part 1. No Place for Chickens, Part 1. And by this point, and, and you don't know how long people have been you know, studying um, the Torah, how long they've been perhaps looking at some of the rabbinic sources to, to reference the terms and the idioms that are used in the New Testament. So just in case anybody listening doesn't know this, we don't want to assume you know this, but often people think that there is a literal rooster crowing when Yeshua warns Peter that before the rooster crows, you're going to have denied me three times. And so they think that's a little rooster. And at some level, it could be in terms of the rooster being the, the trigger for the actual rooster. The rooster that we're thinking about is not the rooster. The rooster is what the temple trumpeters were called. They were called the roosters because they they would get up. There was a certain there were certain places on the Temple Mount where they would stand. And in 1968, they found the the pedestal of one of the the places where one of the roosters stood that had fallen down into the rubble at the base of the Temple Mount. And so to this day, you can see that and see what it would have, you know, probably looked like where they stood, but they would have stood at certain stations on the Temple Mount and blown specific calls on the trumpet or the shofar that signaled 
what should be happening right then. We know that there's certain trumpet calls that are required for, say, the new moons, for the feasts, for the year of Jubilee, and so forth. But there was lots of other business that was going on in the temple of holy business that you needed a signal to get started. And of course, one of those signals is going to be it's time to start the day. Even though you have a a shift of Levites that guards the temple all through the night, nevertheless, you need a wake-up call. Uh, They didn't, you know, they didn't have iPhones with alarms on them. And back then, you know, everybody's alarm clock was going to be the rooster. And so these, these men who blew the shofars or the trumpets to signal, like, for instance, the, the beginning of the day's activities were certain specified times by the Torah. They were called the roosters. And so the, the first call that you would hear in the morning, of course, would be this rooster who's stirring the priests and the Levites saying, hey, it's time for your shift to start. The, the sun is officially up because what was their cue? Well, they would hear a rooster. When they heard a rooster crow, they knew that it, it's, okay, now it's officially considered daylight or dawn. And so then they would go to their posts and they would in turn blow a shofar, a trumpet, And that tells the priests and the Levites that it's time to get up and start preparing the daily services. So was it an actual rooster? There probably was. But why are we questioning whether there would have been an actual rooster? It goes back to what is collected for us in the Mishnah. In Mishnah Bava Kama 7, we read it's forbidden to raise fowl in Jerusalem because of the holy things nor may priests raise them anywhere in the land of Israel because of the laws concerning pure foods. They, As they are today, back then, chickens were really messy, kind of nasty animals, and, and they don't care where they do things. And so because of the special sanctity of the temple, and you have people who have immersed themselves, they've maintained ritual purity, they've immersed themselves, and now they need to make that walk up to the the temple mount from on those temple steps. And if you had chickens running around Jerusalem, you might be stepping on things that would just bust the whole plan. You know, you might have to turn right back around. You know, it sets you back a day because you're going to have to go immerse and and then you, you get to try again tomorrow. So for that reason, you didn't have chickens in the the direct, in the the close proximity to the temple mount. Does that mean there weren't any chickens at all? I think there probably were chickens. But if you've if you've ever been to Jerusalem or you've seen maybe aerial photographs of the vicinity of the original walled area of the city, because it was a much smaller place than what we perceive now. Of course, the the many conquerors who came in would put up additional walls so that the walls we see today. Often we can really, we're tracing those back to the medieval period, to the crusader period, to the to the Turks, to the Ottomans. And so it's hard to get a, a good visual really on, on where would the original walls of Jerusalem been. But of course, the area would have been much smaller than it is today. So how did the, the temple roosters know that the rooster had crowed if you weren't allowed to raise chickens in Jerusalem? Well, one thing to remember is regardless of exactly where the walls were, that it did have walls. And so if you did have chickens or roosters right outside the walls, I'm sure you would hear them. 
The acoustics are wonderful down there in the Kidron Valley. The acoustics are wonderful in that area just because there's so much rock and stone. So I'm sure if there were chickens and roosters around the area, and perhaps they even brought them in specifically uh, so that they could hear them and that could signal them so that, that they could go up and take their posts and be the rooster. And this is, is very important because you have to get the priests and the Levites up and, and busy going to work uh, to get the temple services started. And in terms of the feasts and, and so forth, that has to be done. People have to know. And so even though the temple was no place for chickens, nevertheless, that, that rooster call is going to be important. So when Yeshua makes that statement to Peter, you can t- tell by then that it, he's saying, by the time the sun comes up, Peter, you're going to have denied me three times. Because this, whether we're talking about the some literal rooster somewhere that signaled the temple roosters to get up and start blowing, it doesn't matter. What he's saying is, is basically idiomatic for daybreak. So the temple's been destroyed. We don't have temple roosters, uh, and we probably do now have chickens in Jerusalem somewhere, maybe even a little too close to the temple mount. I know that there are cats all over the temple mount, and I don't know that they're that much cleaner than than chickens, having witnessed some of the behavior in that area. (laughs) But we now are that temple. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we have been sent out to the nations to be a house of prayer for all nations. We have been sent to the nations to pray, to intercede for them, while at the same time we obey the Holy One. The the instructions haven't changed since the beginning. We pray and we obey. And so if we are called to be little temples of the Holy Spirit sent to the nation, there's still no room for chickens. And this kind of chicken there's no room for is for people who have been sent out to the nations to obey the word and pray for the nations, we can't be afraid to do that. And all too often, we're we're out here in the world, and all of the sudden, we're more afraid of what the world says about us, or we're more afraid of what the world thinks about us, than we are what the Holy One says about us, or what He thinks about us. But He's the one who sent us on a mission to obey the word, and to pray for the nations, to be a house of prayer for them. This is no place for chickens to operate. We have to be courageous as he sends us out there. So I want to look at at the most courageous of all, and that most courageous of all, our example would be Yeshua. Talk about walking into a den of thieves. Talk about walking into a den of sin. Talk about walking into a den of hypocrisy. Talk about walking into a den of sickness. Talk about walking into a den of ignorance. Everything we felt like we've ever walked into, Yeshua walked into one before we did. But he conquered. He conquered all. And that's how he appears to us in the book of Revelation. He appears in Revelation not as that simple, humble rabbi from the Galilee. In Revelation, we clearly see him as a person in authority. And one of the the characteristics of Yeshua in the book of Revelation is that his feet are described a couple of times as like burnished bronze or like bronze when it has been heated in a furnace. So that makes us think of other contexts. What would that mean to us in the last book of the Bible? 
we want to understand what it means in the last book of the Bible, then we go to the earlier books of the Bible because it it sets down the pattern. One of the things, and of course, I know your the first instinct is going to be, wow, the brazen altar. Yeah, we're going to look at the brazen altar, but there's another thing that has feet like burnished bronze, and that was the bronze sea of the temple, and it did have feet. You know, it had the burnished bronze feet, but this is, again, it was where the the priests would wash their hands in this bronze sea. And if you'll remember, well, you you can go back and read it for yourself to get more of the details, but, you know, remember the oxen, you know, that are supporting it. There's a lot of, of symbolism there, but just to simplify it, the sea or the seas in scriptures, they often represent the people's. Nations, peoples, people groups. And so set into the temple and the plan of the temple was this huge bronze sea representing the sea of the peoples. And there had to be a washing of water by the word. Well, how was this sea of peoples, how were they going to be washed by the water of the word? For an Israelite going up to the feast three times a year, they understand the washing of the water. They understand what bronze represents. But what about all those nations out there who had been disconnected from their creator? Well, Yeshua is going to send his disciples out there to teach them the washing of water by the word. That's what a royal priesthood is called to do. The plan was there in the temple. It's always been designed as a house of prayer for all nations. But you know, these priests, they're going to wash their hands before they go in any farther. As they go into the holy place, they're going to wash their hands. And what happens in the holy place is going to be the offering of the incense and the trimming of the menorah. We're going to look at that specifically because it's going to show us what we should be doing. What is our job as a priesthood? Sometimes it feels like we're just getting by. We're just trying to hold on till Yeshua gets back. And Yeshua doesn't want us to just hold on till he gets back. If that's all you can do, he says, stand. But he sent you out to be a priest. He sent you out to be part of this washing of water by the word for the sea of peoples. So you've got this burnished bronze sea that's set on feet. You can also see the burnished bronze feet on the four living creatures. In Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 7 through 14, if you review that, remember the, the four living creatures, which represent the Rakh HaKodesh, specifically in movement. Remember the four living creatures, they could run in any direction without turning. If, if it was the will of the Father for the Spirit to do something, it went. No delay. And in this picture, rather than just like the oxen supporting the sea, we have the four living creatures of an ox a lion, an eagle, and then a man with burning coals. And then in another picture, there's a a karuf, or like we hear about the the cherubim, right? That would be plural. A karuf would be singular. They're actually representing the same thing, right? It's, there's a human aspect to it. But these four things, the ox, the lion, the eagle, and the man, which represent the four directions of the Israelite encampments, This was the job of the 12 tribes of Israel. They represented the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, working through people. And when the Father says, go do something, they run to go do it. If they run west, that's the direction of the ox. 
You know, if they run east, that's the direction of the lion. If they run north, that's the direction of the eagle. If they run south, that's the direction of the man. Um, and so those banners, somebody asked me, like, where's banners in the Bible? Right there. <laughs> they're, they're symbolic of not just the presence of the Holy Spirit, but the movement of the Holy Spirit and being willing to do his will quickly, not to delay the commandment. Uh, don't delay the mitzvah. Is, is the same. So these four living creatures also had burnished bronze feet. One thing we know about the Ruach HaKodesh is its spiritual authority. What do we know about this bronze sea? Is that the priesthood that is washing their hands in this bronze sea, the washing of the hands is also part of their authority to minister in the holy place. So associated with the bronze, we're going to talk about sacrifice too, but there's also an aspect of authority that associated that is associated with it because Yeshua is described as the one in the middle of the lampstand. The middle of the lampstand of the menorah is going to also represent the authority of the Holy Spirit. So when we look at Revelation 115, and Revelation 2.18, it describes Yeshua's feet as like burnished bronze. You don't get bronze without obedience. You, you don't get to go to the bronze sea in disobedience because we know what happened to a priest who rebelled or was in disobedience. Bad things could happen. The closer they got to the Holy of Holies, the more likely it was that the Spirit would break out on them. So, what is the, the picture we have of the four living creatures with the bronze feet? They run, they run to do the will of Elohim. So if you have bronze feet, one of the things we should associate with that is their obedient feet. Obedient feet are the bronze feet and they're shining like they've been uh, heated in a furnace. That's what obedience requires. Some things are easy to obey, but lots of things aren't. And the heat gets high. He turns up the heat on us to see if we'll still obey in the fire. And if, if you go back to the footsteps to the coffin miniseries in our footsteps of Messiah, you saw over several lessons, exactly, you know, how the feet can represent where heaven and earth meet on the Temple Mount. It went back to the alabaster, the alabaster covering or uh, pavement on the Temple Mount and how the, the priest's feet, they had to go barefoot on that alabaster because the alabaster was representing where heaven and earth kiss, where the, the two realms come together. And if we're, we're going to bring heaven back down, as it was in the Garden of Eden, then the temple service is, it's right at the center of that process. The, the priesthood was showing us, you know, when they were obedient, how that should look. It was just prophecy. Every step was prophecy and showing how heaven was going to return when obedience returned. And this is why this mission to the nations, becoming a house of prayer for all nations, was so vital to the temple service. The temple service was even more vital to the nations than it was to Israel. You realize that? Israel had the Torah. They had the commandments. They had even proven that you could walk through the wilderness and keep the commandments. And still, eventually, <laughs> make it to the promised land. But the nations had been alienated. 
from the presence of Adonai. And so the temple service that went on there was absolutely vital to the nations also coming back and recognizing the Elohim who created them and serving him and only him and not their idols. So this place where heaven and earth meet, the temple mount, it was a place set aside for the purest of obedience to invite that presence to descend like it did in the Garden of Eden. And if you look at the process, the sacrificial process, it has to start with the bronze altar. And if you've been reading in Revelation, you know, this altar actually talks and it praises Adonai. You know, you, O Lord, you are holy, you are true. It always acknowledges who he is. It's the voice of the righteous, this talking altar. Because remember, this is also where the souls of the righteous are stored. The souls of the righteous in Revelation, they are stored under the altar. Remember saying, how long, O Lord? Well, they have dedicated their lives to sacrificial living. And now they have crossed over and they are awaiting the resurrection of the dead so they can get their bodies back. So they can be whole spirit, soul, body. But they're they're told basically that you're going to have to wait till the last soul comes into the altar. This last sacrificial soul will have to come in. Only the father knows that number. And only then will the resurrection of the dead occur. But they, they always agree. The souls under the altar, they always agree with the Holy One. And the fact that they are there under the bronze altar, which this is thought to be positioned under the throne of heaven itself, like heavenly throne, the seat would be up here, and then the bronze altar below. And then these souls are, are thought to be like stored underneath daddy's chair, if you want to look at it like that. Uh, they're right around his feet. And remember, this is where the, the temple mount is. It's where he rests his feet. This is the feet or the big picture right here. And so as they're awaiting the resurrection of the dead, we understand from the context, these are martyrs. These people, which I've always, I had always read it as like they had literally been martyred for their, their faith. But as I've worked, you know, more years in the material, I realized this could be anybody who has lived a sacrificial life. Maybe they did, weren't beheaded, literally beheaded, but they were beheaded in the sense that they gave their heads, they gave their authority over to the Holy Spirit. Not it, It's a, the sacrificial living. It says, nevertheless, not my will, not my head, but yours be done. In that sense, they have been beheaded. It's not as, it doesn't have to be bloody. Although many have been martyred. Many have literally given up their lives to find a home under that altar while they await. But any life of sacrifice, any soul of sacrifice you might find under that altar. And these would be the people who are, who are sealed over. They have already been classified in that category of the righteous. There's also another category that we look at at Rosh Hashanah, which is, of course, the wicked. But the biggest category seems to be the lukewarm or the, the intermediates. And so much of the scripture is addressed at them, addressed to them, because they ride the fence so much. They, they want all the perks of the temple, but they don't necessarily want to bring the sacrifices. They don't want to live a sacrificial life. And that's why this, this bronze altar and these bronze feet these are evidence of a sacrificial life lived for the testimony of Yeshua and the commandments of Elohim. It's no place for chickens. Remember, there's no chickens on the temple mount. There's no chickens under that altar. 
if we want to be stored with the righteous until the day of resurrection, we can't be chickens. The, the temple is no place for chickens. Let's read this. Revelation 1.12, John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, the middle, the fourth position of the lampstand, remember that is the position of authority. The, it started out with one piece of beaten gold, and then they beat out these six branches from it. So originally, this was the piece. This was the one piece. And then you beat out these six branches. And so where is Yeshua standing? Right here in the middle, where the authority is. And so you've got the Ruach Adonai right here, which is the most general statement you can make. Then you're going to have wisdom, understanding, counsel. Those are specific. These are things that have been branched or beaten out. You're going to have over here power, knowledge, reverence. Again, these are specific things that have been beaten out. So the authority of the Holy Spirit will also be contained in these other branches. Nevertheless, they, they have a more specific function to them. But this right here represents the authority. And this is exactly where Yeshua is standing. He has the authority of the Rakh HaKodesh, the authority of the Holy Spirit. It says, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. So you want to take a look at this, this golden sash. And remember, gold was what the menorah was made of. There is a spiritual aspect of gold. The statutes of Adonai are compared to uh, being better than much fine gold. Right? So the, there's the letter of the commandment, but then the spirit fills it. If you're trying to keep a commandment without the spirit, then there's, you know, I'm going to say the spirit gives life. The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So if you're trying to keep the commandments without the power of the Holy Spirit, it's a, it's a tough road to go on. But with the power of the Holy Spirit, it's still going to be a tough road, but you've got the spirit to enable you to do it. To If you can walk in that spiritual authority, then even when it's tough, it's less tough than it would be trying to do it without the spirit as, as the power source, as the engine for those keeping those commandments. Now, as we look at Revelation 1, 12 through 13, we can see that the menorah is there. Again, represents the seven spirits of Adonai, but also located in the holy place with the menorah was the golden incense altar the golden incense altar. You can't make it to the golden incense altar if you bypass the bronze altar. You have to take the coals from the bronze altar before you can put the ground incense on those coals and then take it in and do the incense service there with the light of the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, remember those four living creatures that had the feet like burnished bronze, in the middle of them, it says there were burning coals. So the, the bronze, you can see, has that element of fire associated with it. it. It fires things up. And so when it fires things up, then we get the idea of like gold that is refined. Then we can see the golden menorah. Then we can see the golden incense altar, but you don't bypass the brazen altar. You don't bypass the fire. Life with Yeshua is going to be one of trials and tests. What we have to pray is don't lead us into hard testing. 
It's fine to pray that, Yeshua said, by the way. That is a prayer you definitely want to pray. Don't lead us into hard testing, but don't pray, don't lead me at all into testing, because that's your fire. That's your bronze. Those are your, your feet. That's going to help you get your feet under you, get you, you situated so that as you serve in this royal priesthood, that you are properly approaching the incense service of prayer. Because there's one kind of prayer out there at the brazen altar. It, it's sacrificial, right? That, that's also an act of prayer. It's an act of communicating with the Holy One, but it's more refined as you move into the holy place. The, the prayer is more refined. It's instead of burning up, as they say in the church world, the flesh, this work that has to be done out here at the bronze altar, as you go into the golden altar, there's much more of this meditative closeness, intimacy kind of relationship with the priest and the Holy One. And then the priest is bringing, again, the prayers of all the nations into that golden incense altar. So the, the menorah, it, it has a relationship to the incense service. And so as they're going to do this incense service, or if they're going to trim the menorah and service the menorah, the priests had to wear certain items of clothing. And one of the pieces of clothing that they had to wear was a sash. And here we see Yeshua wearing a golden sash. His is a refined sash. He has these bronze feet. It says he his feet have been held to the fire. He has resurrected from the tribulation. He has resurrected from the sacrifice. And so now he's worthy to stand in the holy place. He is worthy to wear the golden sash of authority. And, and you can see that those two things are connected. As you see Yeshua there, you see him in the middle of the lampstand, a position of authority. And then you see him wearing this sash, which is also a picture of authority. When, when you wear the sash, it's giving you the spiritual authority to accomplish a particular mission. So the, the Midrash Rabbah comments about this service. And this is from Deuteronomy 5, 27 through 29. And Moses is reminding the Israelites of their encounter with Adonai at Mount Sinai when they, they agreed to the covenant. It says, go near and hear all that the Lord our God says, then speak to us all that the Lord our God speaks to you, and we will hear and do it. And you notice here they flipped it. First they said, we will do and we will hear. And then once they encountered the actual voice and how terrifying the actual voice was, this time they flip and they say, we will hear and we will do it. Okay, help us, teach it to us, Moses, and we will do it. And, and that's what I say about the commandments. Sometimes you need to study them and learn them and then do them. Other things, really, you just need to read it. You'll know what it means. You just do it. And then later, you'll get the full understanding of it. Some things you will not understand until you do them. And sometimes so you do them a long time. And then the, the understanding just keeps deepening. It says, the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people, which they have spoken to you. They have done well. And that Hebrew word there is, hey, tivu, hey, tivu. And if you've got an ear for Hebrew words, you, hear, you heard this, the essence of this word is tov, tov, which, you know, means good. Remember how many times he proclaimed the creation good in Genesis chapter one? And it was good. And it was good. And it was good. He saw it and it was good. It was very good. And so he says, what these people had just agreed to do, it's good. 
they're they're performing in their function. They're they're performing as I created them to. He says they have done hey vu and all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. So the the wellness, your wellness is dependent upon having this kind of heart in you to fear him and keep his commandments always. The, The heart of the wellness of your children and your grandchildren as that you would keep this promise to, to hear and do, or if you said to do and to hear, it doesn't matter which order you do it. It's what he's saying right here. I don't care whether you do and you hear or whether you hear and you do. It's good because you're saying you'll listen to me. And when you say you'll listen to the Holy One, he says, I heard your voice. I wanted to hear that. It's kind of like he has selective hearing sometimes too. He likes it when we say we will listen to you. The root of this word will Hetibu, again, is tov. And if you're doing good or if you're doing well, then it's because it's a matter of you performing the word. Remember the, the four living creatures running to do his will? Yeshua running to do his father's will, and he's got the, the fiery bronze feet because of it. When we run to do his word, it is accomplishing what he sent it to do, and we get to be the bearer of that. As human beings, we get to bear his word. We have a chance to do well. We have a chance to do good when we hurry to perform his commandments. We were created from the beginning to be a royal priesthood. It wasn't plan B, C, D, or E. It's still plan A for us to be a royal priesthood. And so it's in that sense, the Levitical priesthood is more of the plan B. But by looking at plan B, we get a lot of hints and patterns as to how we can do well how we can do good, how we can pray. We can be part of the the bronze altar service. We can be part of the golden altar service. We can be empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh, by the menorah, to listen to Elohim and to obey him. And so now if we go to Exodus 30, verse 5, it is going to show us how these two things are linked together. He says, you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the Ark of the Testimony, right? The Ark of the Testimony is going to have the commandments in it. In front of the mercy seat that is over the Ark of the Testimony, for I will meet with you. Now watch how these two things are linked. Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it, on this golden altar. He's going to burn fragrant incense. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. What is the word there? Behetivu, behetivu. You can hear the tov, and it's it's a verb form, right? Tov is a is a noun. Uh, it can be an adjective, but this is going to be the verb form of it. So here, Adonai is linking the prayers of the incense service, lifting up the prayers of Israel, lifting up the prayers of the nations at the golden altar. He's saying it is linked to servicing the lamps of the menorah to making sure that you're ministering with the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you do that, that that trimming of the lamps, that continual attention to the lamp of the Holy Spirit, you're going to make good. And the verb form, yatav, that means to make well, literally to make something beautiful, to make something happy, to make something successful or right. 
It can mean to be accepted, to use a right, to benefit from, to make better. So what's happening in this holy place when we pray and obey, when we rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit to make things good and beautiful, it's not just for our own sake. We might be in that prayer closet alone, but it's for the sake of the people for whom we are interceding because see all their sacrifices are out there on the altar as well. Their sacrifices burn down to coals. And so we take those coals and that's when we put the incense in there to make it smell good. And so the, the word play there, you know, how ma- making the lamps good, it's, it's part of what we do when we pray and obey. We make things good. We become that agent for the Holy One, the messenger of the Holy One, the people with the sash around, with the authority to minister in that holy place and to take all those, those sins and those guilty things off of the brazen altar. When people bring those things in repentance and sorrow and confession and intent to change, we take all that as it burns down and we add incense. And when it begins to smoke, it symbolizes the prayer that that which was representing the ugly things, the stinky things that we did, now the incense turns it as the prayers go up. It's it's something that, that could be smelled all over the city. The incense was so strong as it would come out of the holy place. So when we learn to pray and obey the word with the power of the Ruach HaKodesh, then we are fulfilling our vow that we made at Mount Sinai to be royal priests. We're making good on our promise. See, the Holy One, we're always looking at him like, we we want you to keep your promises to us. We want to be prosperous. We want to be healthy. You know, we want to be safe. We're always calling on him to, to make good on his promises. But how often do we make good on ours? If we say we will do and we will hear, then the expectation is, yeah, you're going to deliver on that. You're If you said you agreed to be a royal priest, then you will take care of my services. You will make good in the world. You will make beauty in the world. You will go out into that sea of the nations and you will begin to wash them in the water of the word. You will come out of my holy place, the time you spend with me in prayer, where you have have experienced that concealed light of the menorah, the the more intense power of the Holy Spirit, that's going to rest on you and you're going to take it back outside. You're going to take it back to the sea of the nations. Now you are the stand-in for this house of prayer for all nations. So when you pray, you're not just interceding for others, but you are part of this process of helping them to realize the growth potential that is encoded into the creation. You were teaching them how to wash in the water of the word. You were teaching them to listen for the good waters. Remember, it says his voice is like the the sound of many waters. Well, Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they were terrified of the sound of Elohim's voice. This is why so many people don't want to be around you. If you were speaking with the good waters of the voice of Elohim, out there in this bronze sea of the peoples, they don't necessarily want to hear that because there's a terror. There's there's something in them that, that they know they need to repent. They want to hide from that. And so that they might have different reactions. They don't want to hear that voice. But what are we doing? We are being an example of those who seek his voice. We're not afraid to hear his voice. We're not afraid to wash in the water of the word because we know at the same time the word accuses us, it will also 
purify us, if we come with humble hearts. And this is a prayer service we have to do well. We have to do good every single day. You couldn't just skip days with the menorah and the golden altar. There were no skip days. It had to be done well daily. And when they would prepare the incense for the service, they had to smash it up. You know, they had to grind it. They had these mortar things and they had to grind the incense so that it was very fine so that it it would create the proper smoke. And so the temple official that would supervise this process of the grinding, he would say, Hedek Hetev, Hetev Hedek in Hebrew. And what that means is grind thoroughly, grind well, thoroughly, well, grind. You hear the word tov in there, hetev, hetev, do it good, do it good. When you are preparing for prayer, do good, grind it, think about it. He's saying, dude, don't just stand there and stir the incense around with your finger, smash it. Don't be a chicken in prayer. It's okay to let your prayers be fervent. That's what James said in 5.16, the the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. Why are they fervent? They're grinding it thoroughly. They're doing good. They're not just tapping it with a finger or, you know, just kind of, we'll move it around a little bit. But no, he's saying smash it in prayer, crush it in prayer. I don't know why people get so wound up over sports events or competing in sports. And you're like, we just crushed that. And I'm like, why are you crushing your prayer life? It's no place for chickens. Our prayers have to be fervent. And when a righteous person who is experienced in sacrifice smashes those prayers, preparing them for the golden altar, and that person knows that you cannot offer that incense until the burning coals are taken off of the, the bronze altar. It's going to burn away all this self-serving intent. So it's only going to leave the purest of coals, the purest of fire. And that's why I think Yeshua is teaching his disciples and us, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because More frequently than not, our will is not his will. And every time we choose his will over our will, we're burning down to pure coals. This is where bronze feet touch the temple mount, when we just burn it down to the coals. And it just leaves his will, where we're not getting in the way of prayer. How many times, what what else did James say? You, You ask and you don't receive because you consume it upon your lust. You're injecting yourself into the prayer. You, you want your will to supersede that of the holy ones. And that's, that's what the idol worshipers did. That's why they needed so many idols. They didn't really want to serve. They wanted to be served. So you went to that particular God that you thought was most likely to give you what you wanted. If you wanted a fertility, you went to a fertility God. If you wanted good harvest, then you went to your agricultural God. If you wanted good luck, you went to your good luck God. It just depended on what you wanted, which God you went to and sacrificed to. And we're not supposed to treat our Elohim that way. When we come to him with sacrifices, it's our own will that we bring. We burn that on the brazen altar. And from there, he's able to put that sash around us and say, okay, now you bring that pure intent of a righteous person. You bring that into my holy place. 
Yeshua is the one in the middle of the, the menorah. He's, he's the one of authority. He had the sash. He had the belt. He had the authority of heaven because he was standing there for a specific task or mission. When we live a life like that, letting him burn up our will, then he puts a, a belt of authority around us and gives us a mission. One of the funniest, I think, there's not a lot of funny stuff in the book of Acts, <laughs> seriously, but one of the funniest things in there, other than Paul having to be put in a basket and lowered over a wall, that would have to be a pretty funny sight. I mean, it was a very serious occasion, but just seeing Paul in a basket, that's that's a good one. But remember when Peter was put in jail during Passover, the Passover week, and they said, we're not going to kill him during the Passover week because the people might riot. Peter knew that his his best buddy, James, Yaakov, remember Peter, James, and John, that, that was the, the three amigos. And he knew James had just been beheaded. He had just been martyred for his mission. And so here Peter sits in jail, awaiting the end of Passover, knowing he's next. He doesn't really have a reasonable hope that anything's going to be different than what just happened to his buddy, James. But nevertheless, we know the believers in Jerusalem were praying fervent prayers. They were offering prayers on his behalf. And as it turns out, Peter's mission wasn't over yet. He still had a belt to wear. He still had people to go to. Acts 12, 8 says, the angel said to him, gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. So when you gird yourself, you put that sash on. You say, okay, I'm not done yet. He has something he wants me to do. And so when we gird ourselves, we acknowledge, yes, you gave me this mission to do. And with that comes the authority to do it. And it, as you read that passage in Acts 12, you realize it's a, it's a revisitation of the Exodus. You know, it's, it's basically have your cloak wrapped around you, put your saddle, sandals on, get ready to leave Egypt. It happens to Peter too. That's why I say, don't ever ask when prophecy is fulfilled ask how many times it's been fulfilled. And so the angels tells Peter, gird up, put your sandals on, put on your outer garment, you're about to have an exodus. And so he follows the, the angel out of the, the jail. And it's so funny, he goes up to the gate to, to rejoin the other believers. And the girl who comes up to the gate can't believe it's him and runs off. <laughs> That's pretty funny to me. Because how many times have we prayed for something and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed? And then finally, he grants the prayer. We can't believe it. Wow, he answered my prayer. Well, it is up to him how he answers. It's not that he doesn't answer. He does answer sometimes. It's just not the answer we wanted. But every now and then, he'll give us what we want. It'll, it'll scare us so bad, we'll run off. <laughs> we'll have to go think about that for a while. It, it is hard when a believer doesn't believe it because it's so miraculous. But he can do those things for us. So the message is, in this walk in the word that we have, we're going to have to gird up. We're going to have to strengthen ourselves. We're going to have to tighten up. We're, we're approaching Shavuot. This is a message to tighten up. Because if we're walking to Shavuot, we see Yeshua in the middle of the lampstand. Shavuot is the middle feast here. This is a place where you're going to be sealed up with a greater measure of spiritual authority. If you're going to keep your word, keep your, your promise to hear, to obey, to do, then you're going to need that authority and that, that garment to continue walking into the fall feasts for whatever mission he's given you to do between now and then. So you're going to have to stay ready. 
He wants to give you additional robes of righteousness. He doesn't want you just walking around in a in a garment of salvation. There are robes of righteousness for you to walk in if you're a faithful priest. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much. Righteousness is more than obedience. It's obedience with experience. And in that experience, you'll learn what it means to sacrifice. You'll learn what it means to give it up at the the bronze altar so that you can more effectively minister at the golden altar of incense. He has missions for you. And it's up to you how firmly you fasten that belt around you. But the more you walk with him, the more you experience this and realize that he rescues you out of every trial and test, the more, I think, the tighter you're willing to bind it around you because it gives you confidence. He's brought me through it before. I can take it up another notch. And you're going to feel secure with your new mission because it's the word of truth surrounding you. And the more you walk as this righteous person who can fervently pray and obey, you'll realize there's no reason to run around life like a chicken with your head cut off. There's no room for chickens in the priesthood. There's no room for chickens on the Temple Mount. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.